Several years ago, when I was in college, Stanford University went to the Rose Bowl two consecutive years and overcame insurmountable odds and defeated the Big Ten representative both years. They had a very flashy offense at those times. The first year it was led by Heisman Trophy winner uh, Jim Plunkett, who was the most outstanding collegiate player uh, of that year. And uh, yet, even though they had a very flashy team that put a lot of points on the board, the key to those teams were the defense. The defensive unit really won the games for them, especially the big games, the bowl games. And the reason I know that is for the next three years, I played at Stanford on the defensive unit, and we didn't go any place. <laughs> and uh, the defense is really what, what wins games. If you ask coaches, they say, well, the offense... They're flashy, they're for show. They bring in all the people who want to watch the game. But in the win-loss column, it's really the defense that is the critical element. And as the coaches talk about the Super Bowl game in the NFL, they always talk about defense. And you cannot win in the uh, playoff games. You cannot win the big game without defense. Well, as far as I know, the Apostle Paul never played football in his day. He may have had a similar game. I'm not sure. But Dr. Luke tells us, as he uh, talks about Paul in Acts, that at times, for the uh, benefit of the gospel, concerning the gospel, that Paul really felt that the best offense was a good defense. And now Paul is uh, stuck in Caesarea for two years now. Uh, we saw some of that last week. And that Felix, uh, who left him in prison as a favor to the Jews, has now been replaced by a man named uh, Festus. And Paul is still awaiting for um, that long-awaited trial to be brought forth. And we're going to come into uh, some new characters like Festus and King Agrippa and Bernice. And in your bulletin, you will find an outline, which I may or may not follow. But you will find a uh, cast of characters, uh, which I will not take time to read through uh, who they are right now, because you can uh, read at that as we go along through our time in Acts this morning. So fasten your seatbelts, and here we go. But after two years had passed, Festus was succeeded by Porcius, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus. How would you like to name Porcius? <laughs> and wishing to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Festus, therefore, having arrived in the province three days later, went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the leading men of the Jews brought charges against Paul, and they were urging him, requesting a concession against Paul, that he might have him brought to Jerusalem, at the same time setting an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus then answered that Paul was being kept in custody at Caesarea, and that he himself was about to leave shortly. Therefore, he said, let the influential men among you go there with me. And if there is anything wrong about the man, let them prosecute him. Well, Festus is, uh, secular history doesn't tell us much about this person, except that he seemed to be a just Roman official. And that's a little bit unusual, and that those days it was very easy to be an unjust Roman official. But he also is the new kid, so to speak, on the block. He's just been given this area... Uh, to govern, and uh, he arrives in the situation and wishing to get a feel for what's going on religiously and politically, uh, he goes up to Jerusalem, even though Caesarea is 
is the home grounds for the uh, governor. Jerusalem is where the action takes place. It's kind of like the difference between Washington, D.C. And, and New York City. You know, the government's in Washington, but everybody tells me the action really takes place in New York. So, Festus is checking things out. He no sooner gets there than these uh, Jews start pressuring him, knowing that he's new to the situation and saying, Hey, there's a guy down there in Caesarea named Paul. We want to put him on trial back here in Jerusalem. He kind of uh, was snuck away from us. We, we didn't get the, our chance at him. And uh, Festus says, well, you know, I've got to be fair. Roman law says I've got to uh, let the man face his accusers. And I'm not too familiar with the situation yet anyway, so I'm going to go down there in a few days, and, and I'll go down and talk with Paul and get a handle on this situation. Then you all can come down in a few days and uh, prosecute him if you really feel that you need to. And it's uh, strange here that, if you remember a couple of chapters ago, there were over 40 men who made a vow not to eat or drink until they had killed the Apostle Paul. Well, a little over two years has taken place now, and that is the strangest, toughest diet I have ever seen. I was talking with one person in the other service, and they said, well, yeah, that's the low-cal, no-cal diet. So either these uh, 40 people had to go back on their vow, um, or some of them probably perished along the way. I tend to think they probably found a way to get out of their vow. <clears throat> so we have Festus going down to uh, Caesarea, verse 6. And after he had spent not more than eight or ten days among them, he went down to Caesarea, and on the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. And after he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him, which they could not prove. <clears throat> While Paul said in his own defense, I have committed no offense either against the law of the Jews or against the temple or against Caesar. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, answered Paul and said, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me on these charges? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried. I have done no wrong to the Jews, as you very well know. If I then am a wrongdoer and have committed anything worthy of death, I do not refuse to die. But if none of those things is true, of which these men accuse me, no one can hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus had conferred with his counsel. He answered, You have appealed to Caesar. To Caesar you shall go. Paul finds out that uh, he is becoming a political pawn that uh, Festus uh, realizes that these charges are not really very good charges. Uh, Paul knows that they aren't good charges. Uh, everything seems to be running amok. Festus realizes that Paul uh, is a person with certain Roman rights, but he also knows, on the other hand, that there are some Jewish people that are very influential in his region, and he better appease them more than he needs to appease the Apostle Paul. So he decides that it might be a nice idea if he found out if Paul were willing to go back to Jerusalem. That would score big points with these Jewish folk. Paul says in his own mind, you know, if I go back to Jerusalem, that's akin to committing suicide. They'll string me up. They'll tar and feather me. They'll make sure that I don't escape. And that's true. Their purpose was to ambush him along the way. And as a Roman citizen, he had one option left open to him that he could see. And that was his, the course of appeal, an appeal to Caesar. Once he made that appeal, 
it had to be followed through. And then once the emperor heard the case, there was no recourse. But that was part of the Roman judicial system. Just like we have a court uh, of appeals or an appeal system for verdicts which we don't like, the Roman government offered to their Roman citizens, not every citizen, but just their Roman citizens, that right of appeal. And you could make it after your case, during your case, or before your case. But once you made it, it was irrevocable, and you had to move on in that direction. And so this is what Paul sees taking place. But we also need to see the hand of God working through Paul's life. Because God had said uh, way back when, in like Acts chapter 9, he told Paul, you're going to be my witness to Jews. Well, excuse me, in, in two chapters back, he said, you're going to be my witness in Rome. And so now we see that God is moving Paul in the direction that he wants him to. Paul is going to become God's witness in Rome. And then there is uh, another person who's going to enter the scene, a Roman king with Jewish descent. And this is interesting in light of God's other promise to Paul when he said, you will be my witness to Jews, to Gentiles, and to kings. It's been many years since that promise was made, but now it's coming to its fulfillment. And this was helpful to me because uh, perhaps you're like me in some ways and you think that, how long, how long, O oh Lord, will it take you to work in my life? Just as Kristen was sharing with us her struggle. You wonder, how long will it take you to work in my life? How long will it take you to work in this other person's life? How long will it take you to work in my spouse's life? How long will it take you to work in this situation, to change it for me, to get me out of it? And to us at times, it seems like God takes a long, long time. But we need to remember that God's timing is perfect. And we need to be patient and wait for the perfect timing of God. So there's this king by the name of Agrippa who wants to visit Hephaestus in verse 13. Now, when several days had elapsed, King Agrippa and, and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and paid their respects to Festus. And while they were spending many days there, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a certain man left a prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews brought charges against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation upon him. And I answered them that it is not the custom of the Romans to hand over a man before the accused meets his accusers face to face and has an opportunity to make his defense against the charges. And so after they had assembled here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat at the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. And when the accusers stood up, they began bringing charges against him, not of such crimes as I was expecting, but they simply had some points of disagreement with him about their own religion and about a certain dead man whom, Jesus, whom Paul asserted to be alive. And being at a loss how to investigate such matters, I asked whether he was willing to go to Jerusalem and there stand trial on these matters. But when Paul appealed to be held in custody for the emperor's decision, I ordered him to be kept in custody until I send him to Caesar. And Agrippa said to Festus, I also would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, he said, you shall hear him. Well, fortunately for Festus, who was kind of out of his league with these uh, religious charges, he was obviously expecting some civil charges to be brought against Paul. But there's a king, Agrippa, who is of uh, Jewish descent and a Roman king, who rules over a territory that Festus is under. And so it's to Festus' Festus's advantage 
to get the opinion of this person who's familiar with Jewish religious laws and customs to uh, find out what he can about this particular situation because he is perplexed by it. And King Agrippa uh, is a person of extraordinary ancestry. His great-grandfather was Herod the Great, who killed all the uh, two-year-olds and under at the time of Jesus' birth in Bethlehem. Then he had a grandfather, Herod Antipas, who uh, was the person who had John the Baptist beheaded. Then he had a father, Herod Agrippa I, and all he did was kill the Apostle James by the sword. So here we have uh, a man of uh, somewhat uh, tainted family background, and traveling with him is a person by the name of Bernice. And Bernice happens to be his sister. They happen to be living in an incestuous relationship in a manner of husband and wife. And if you have a Bible dictionary at home, look up Bernice's name and you'll see she had a strange background, a strange life. And so these are the two people, the couple that Paul is going to appear before here shortly, King Agrippa and Bernice. And knowing, as he does, their situation, he might be a little bit uh, uncomfortable uh, feeling intimidated about presenting his religious case to them, his religious defense. Verse 23. And so on the next day, when Agrippa had come together with Bernice amid great pomp and had entered the auditorium, accompanied by the commanders and the prominent men of the city, at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all you gentlemen here present with us, you behold this man about whom all the people of the Jews appealed to me, both at Jerusalem and here, loudly declaring that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had committed nothing worthy of death, and since he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to send him. Yet I have nothing definite about him to write to my lord. Therefore I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after the investigation has taken place, I may have something to write. For it seems absurd to me in sending a prisoner not to indicate also the charges against him. On the one hand, Festus is very relieved that Paul has appealed to Caesar. That takes the case out of his jurisdiction. But on the other hand, he's got to come up with some reasons for sending him. And it was the custom of that day when uh, a king such as Agrippa would visit you as a governor that you would roll out the red carpet, great pomp and circumstance and entertainment, and you courted the favor of the person above you in this way. And so Festus is putting on kind of a festival atmosphere, and the entertainment is to be none other than the Apostle Paul, who King Agrippa would like to, to speak. And Caesarea had a large auditorium. They filled it up. They brought in uh, King Agrippa and Bernice and, and put Paul before them. And uh, Festus is, is endeavoring to get some kind of, of feedback from the king. What can I send to Caesar? Because if he sends him to Caesar without reasonable charges, that could be politically disastrous for Festus. And he knows this. And it's odd, it's almost a contrast, that in this, this time of a celebration and entertainment, the entertainment itself is the Apostle Paul, who has been sitting in prison, or as a prisoner in Caesarea, for over two years on trumped-up charges. What a contrast in, in justice for Paul. So the situation is set. Paul's brought in. The king, Festus, and Bernice are there. 
And so the king raises his hand and allows Paul to make his own defense. Starting in verse or in chapter 26. And Agrippa said to Paul, You are permitted to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and proceeded to make his defense. In regard to all the things of which I am accused by the Jews, I consider myself fortunate, King Agrippa, that I am about to make my defense before you today, especially because you are an expert in all customs and questions among the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. The Apostle Paul apparently had learned a lesson in his two years at Caesarea. Just prior to this, a few chapters back, if you recall, he was somewhat trite and abrupt with the Jewish High Council, and that cost him the hearing of that particular audience. And so he comes before Agrippa, treating him very respectfully, very courteously, knowing that if he wants to bend his ear, if he wants to have a chance at all, to share the gospel with him. He's got to approach him respectfully, even though King Agrippa is uh, a man who is far from being above reproach. Um, a Jew who knows Jewish law, but yet who is not living by Jewish law. And there's a point here for us as well in our sharing of the gospel with friends that we need to approach people respectfully, whether they're agnostic, whether they're atheist whether they're a member of a cult, whether they really don't know what they believe, we need to treat them respectfully, in a respectful way, as a person, as a uh, macho collegiate, as a stuffy seminary student. I blasted away at people all too often, forgetting something very important, that how you say what you say is very important to the listener. In other words, it's as important or more important the way that I present myself, the way that I talk to somebody, because they tend to hear that much more than the words that come out of my mouth. The saying is so true that people uh, don't know, don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And so we need to begin with a point of respect for them as a person. Their beliefs may be haywire, but they are people we need to respect. So once Paul has started off respectfully, he moves on with his defense. Verse 4. So then, all Jews know my manner of life from my youth up, which from the beginning was spent among my own nation and at Jerusalem, since they have known about me for a long time previously, if they are willing to testify, that I lived as a Pharisee according to the strictest sect of our religion. And now I am standing trial for the hope and promise made by God to our fathers the promise to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly serve God night and day. And for this hope, O king, I am being accused by Jews. Why is it considered incredible among you people if God does raise the dead? So then I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prison, prisons, having received authority from the chief priests, but also, when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. And as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. And being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. What Paul uh, does is he finds a point of mutuality. The king has a Jewish background. He's well aware of Jewish things. And Paul knows this. So he starts with that point of mutuality and saying, King Agrippa, 
I'm on trial for nothing more than being a good Jew. A good Jew is looking for that promise made by God years ago of the Messiah to come. The hope. That's what we all want, is the hope promised by God. And that's what I'm on trial for. It shouldn't be incredible that God should raise somebody from the dead if we believe him to be as powerful as he is. That's no small feat for God. It just so happens that that particular person who is the hope of God that was raised from the dead is Jesus of Nazareth. So Paul starts with something in common to take Agrippa to the point of Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, the only thing I've really done wrong is that I persecuted the church, and I admit that was wrong. I shouldn't have done that. But beyond that, I really haven't done anything too bad. Nothing that a good Jew should not have done. And that's, there's another principle here for us as we share the gospel, and that is mutuality. We need to start where there's some common ground before we jump into the uncommon, when it's at all possible. We need to, to start with those areas that, that uh, might be in common as far as hobbies, your work, your school, Whatever it is that you do, your neighborhood, your children, there are all kinds of things that bring us into a point of mutuality with people. And we can start conversations there and then move on to the uncommon. Because when we get to the uncommon, it doesn't seem to be so harsh, so tough to swallow. Because uh, some sort of a relationship is built up there. So Paul has started off winning the king's ear. And he continues on uh, now with his own testimony, which uh, seemed incredible to Paul himself. Verse 12. While thus engaged as I was journeying to Damascus, and with the authority and commission of the chief priests, at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining all around me, and those who were journeying with me. And when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But arise and stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you, to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you, delivering you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, and from the dominion of Satan to God, in order that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. This is the third time in the uh, presentation of Acts by Luke that we have the testimony, the personal testimony of Paul. This is where the elusive spiritual nature of the gospel becomes real and personal. The first time was Acts 9. Then again in Acts 22. And here in Acts 26, Paul brings into focus in just a few words his relationship with God and and how that took place. You know, as as we read these types of things or this testimony, we're often, uh, we flash back in our minds to to our own conversion, that one special time in our life when we trusted Christ. And for me, it was as a high school senior, I'd come home from an evening where I'd just, for the first time, heard about the gospel, that I could have a relationship with God. And I argued with myself for about two hours. 
And amazingly, at the end of those two hours, it dawned on me, I had absolutely nothing to lose. Because if I asked God into my life, and he came in as he said he would do, that meant he was powerful enough he could make changes in my life beyond what I could hope to make. But, on the other hand, if it was all a hoax, if Jesus didn't raise from the, rise from the dead, if he wasn't God, if he couldn't change my life, I had lost nothing. So how ridiculous I've sat here for two hours. Could have made the decision and, and gone on my way. See, for me, the cost was very small. My life wasn't worth much anyway. The risk was minimal. But the potential return was beyond my comprehension. And some of you may be sitting out there this morning, and you've never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of sins, that there's power to live life the way God wants you to live it. Or perhaps you've heard the gospel before, and you're mulling over your mind whether this kind of a relationship is really something that you want. Well, let me urge you this morning to consider Paul's testimony in these verses. And then as well to think through, can you really afford to pass up this kind of opportunity, remembering that the risk is nil. The opportunity is beyond your comprehension. So after Paul makes his his personal testimony to the king, he goes on to tell him that God's not interested in just changing people's lives initially. God wants people at work in the world, doing his work to make the world uh, a better place as far as his kingdom is concerned, meeting needs. So he says, Consequently, King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision, but kept declaring both to those at Damascus first and also at Jerusalem and then throughout all the region of Judea and even to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. For this reason, some Jews seized me in the temple and tried to put me to death. And so having obtained help from God, I stand to this day testifying both to small and great stating nothing but what the prophets and Moses said was going to take place, that the Christ was to suffer, and that by reason of his resurrection from the dead, he should be the first to proclaim light both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Paul wants to make known to Agrippa that he was commissioned by God to serve, to work for his master. And we shouldn't find that unusual either, for Paul in Romans chapter 12, verses 4 through 6 says, that there are varieties of gifts with the same Spirit. There are varieties of ministries with the same Lord. And there are varieties of effects with the same God who works all things and all persons. Now, it's obvious that God does not expect us to be used in the same way as he used the Apostle Paul. Yet it should also be obvious to us that God does want to use each one of us. And I have no idea what your spiritual gifts are, what talents, what abilities, the heart that God has given you. But I do know this. I do know that God is not interested in us being in the bleachers in this game of life. He's not interested in us going home and turning on the television set and passively sitting there watching the action while others are dying out there in activity. He wants us out there and involved in ministry, in opportunities. He wants you involved, and it might be in your home, using your home. It might be a ministry in your own home with your children. It might be where you work. It might be where you go to school. 
might be where you uh, enjoy your recreation. could be any number of places, any number of opportunities. But I know that God wants you involved. As a matter of fact, you could even be involved right here at Cole Community Church. We have opportunities for those starting very little, very young, all the way up through teens, clear up to people who are older, who are uh, living in uh, rest homes and cannot get out and get to a service like this. There are just opportunities that are going away begging as far as Cole Community Church. We, we don't have enough people to meet all the needs that are out there right now. So Paul <coughs> tells the king of his situation, and then he, uh, just as he's getting wound up, just as he's getting into the heart of his preaching, wouldn't you know it, he gets interrupted. And while Paul was saying this in his defense, Festus said in a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you mad. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I utter words of sober truth. For the king knows about these matters, and I speak to him also with confidence, since I am persuaded that none of these things escape his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do. And Agrippa replied to Paul, In a short time you will persuade me to become a Christian. And Paul said, I would to God that whether in a short or long time, not only you but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am except for these chains. Paul knows that he is not mad. He knows that he's not out of his mind. But he also knows now that he is far from reaching his goal of the conversion of King Agrippa. He knows this because in verse 28, that answer is really one of sarcasm. He's, King Agrippa is saying, in a short time, Paul, you're going to persuade me to become a Christian? Uh, I don't think so. And yet we see Paul's heart, Paul's passion. He said, whether it's in a short time or a long time, I wish that you would bend to the will of God. He knows the moral background of King Agrippa. He knows the uh, political power that he has. He knows the potential that this man could have as a servant for God. And so it's his deep passion running through here that he wished that people would become as he is. And it's that same kind of passion that we need to adopt as people. Paul learned the secret of sharing the gospel, which was to hate sin and to love sinners. And that's something that I have struggled with and still struggle with in my own life. You see, it's very easy for me to hate sin, except in my own life. I tend to overlook it a lot. But it's also very easy for me to hate sinners, because they do things that upset me, irritate me, get in my way. But God's plan for us is to hate sin, but to love sinners, so we can share the gospel with them, and they can feel that love. And maybe you're struggling with that same problem that I'm struggling with. And so you need to begin to pray that God would teach you to hate sin, but to love sinners. And that way he'll give you the opportunities to share the gospel in a loving way. So Paul has come to the end of his defense now. And the king arose, and the governor and Bernice, and those who were sitting with him, And when they had drawn aside, they began talking to one another, saying, This man is not doing anything worthy of death or imprisonment. 
And Agrippa said to Festus, This man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Okay, Agrippa came to the same conclusion as Festus. This guy has done nothing wrong. He's not worthy of death. For all we know, Paul could have been set free, but he appealed to Caesar. The king and Festus think he's going to Rome to defend himself politically, but Paul knows that he's going there to spread the gospel. Now, this morning, when I started off, I said the best offense was a good defense. And what I meant by that is that for us, it's not just enough to know what we believe if we're going to encounter and have an impact on the world. It's important that we know why we believe what we believe. The Apostle Paul knew why he believed what he believed. His parents didn't persuade him. He didn't adopt his parents' belief or just take it from his religious background, from all the Sunday school that he went to. He investigated it. And we have that same kind of responsibility. In 1 Peter 3, Peter says, But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. You see, if we're old enough to understand the concepts of the gospel, then we're old enough to know how to defend it. And we need to do that. We need to understand why. And you as parents have an important role because you're the ones who need to help your children when they're young, but especially when they become teenagers, to be able to defend the gospel, to be able to understand the why, not just what they believe, but give them some why, so that when they leave your home, they aren't eaten up by the world out there. I was discussing this with a friend of mine earlier this week, and he was saying he became a Christian at a young age, grew up loving the Lord, used to play with him as an imaginary friend, right beside him. And as he went into high school, he knew he should share his faith, but he was scared spitless because he didn't understand the why of the truths. He knew it was true in his own life, but he didn't understand the whys. And then in January, I received a letter from a person who grew up here in Cole Church and is now off to college and is facing some of those difficulties. And I want you to hear the words of this person. Dear Terry, School's okay, not real hard. The weather has been beautiful until this week. Tonight there is a terrible storm. You're probably surprised to get your own personal letter from me, huh? Well, school really hasn't been going all that well. My motivation has reached bottom. I've had a couple of in-depth discussions with our whole suite about religion. One of them is a Jew, one is Catholic, and my roommate is undeclared. I've also had a couple of discussions with a guy down the hall that is in a that is in about the same place as myself. The trouble is, is that I have a lot of questions on my mind. Maybe doubts would be an even better word. Nothing to worry about, but I've come to the place where the doubts that have cropped up periodically have been pushed aside much too long. I've got to satisfy my quote-unquote curiosities. It's a very frustrating feeling having too many questions with no place to turn for answers. If you could, I would appreciate some advice for some good books. I know that's kind of hard to think of books right off the top of your head, unless you all have seen my office. No, that's not too hard for me. So I'll give you some specific questions. For instance, I have been questioning the validity of the Bible itself. How do I know it is what it claims to be? I also have questions about other religions. Why have I been privileged 
and a very small minority with the one and only true answer. How can I say that the majority of people dedicatedly believing the things they have been conditioned to believe, just as I have, are going to hell? I'd like to know more about other religions. I want to know why they don't have the answer and that I'm not on the wrong track. I'm not so sure if that helps you understand a little about where I am, but I hope so. There are so many questions, it's hard to sort them out and write them down. So anyway, I'm petitioning for aid. This person isn't any different than most people who go to a, out from high school into the world of work or a college campus. It happened to me when I hit a college campus. It happened to my friends. It's the rule, not the exception. You get out away from home, people begin to ask you questions, and you start to think, whether it's religion, whether it's politics, social involvement. You begin to think about those beliefs, and are they true? Are they real? Are they valid? And Paul Little, in his book, Know Why You Believe, which is a very good book, I'd encourage you to get it as a place to start if you want to help yourself in this area, states that we need to become thinking Christians, people who can rationally defend our faith. Because he says there are two erroneous views out there today held by Christians. One is the anti-intellectual approach, in which people misunderstand and misuse verses to come to the point to where they say, well, we don't need intellectually come up with a ground for our faith. It just is there. People will just know it. And on the other side are those who think that they can draw some preconceived questions, have the answers to them, and then argue people into the kingdom of God. That doesn't happen either. You see, there's an intellectual and a moral aspect to the gospel. And we need to be able to appeal to people with intellectual integrity. Otherwise, they think they begin to think that we really are mindless. Let me close with a quote by John Stott, who said, We must not pander to man's intellectual arrogance, but we must cater to their intellectual integrity. And that's what you and I must do. Let it not be said of us that we are Christians who are let it be said, hopefully, that we are intellectual thinking Christians and that we are not mindless people believing something that's an archaic faith. Let's stand as we uh, close this morning. Father, what a privilege it is to be given a, a body and a mind and a relationship with you. I want to pray this morning that if there are those who are here that, that don't know you, that have never considered you, that as we talked about the gospel this morning, they would be urged through your spirit to desire that relationship with you, that you would help them consider that the cost is small and the rewards are great. As we go through the rest of this day, we thank you for the privilege of being alive and living for you in your name. Amen.